0: The movies Avengers Endgame and Casablanca have in common? How about Sunset Boulevard and Guardians of the Galaxy? Well, they're all products of a very well oiled and efficient movie making machine designed to produce films almost as if off a factory line. The 1920s saw the birth of what's become known as the studio system. It was also known as the Golden Age of Hollywood, and by the 1960s it had died out due to a number of factors. If we fast forward a half a century, we find that since 2008, Marvel Studios, via Disney, has held a stranglehold over the movie industry and has become the catalyst for a modern version of that same studio system. While this system has produced some of the most financially successful movies of all time and is showing no signs of loosening its grip, Marvel may nonetheless face some of the same challenges that led to the fall of the original studio system. This week on Ryan's Deepish Dives, We'll take a look at the rise of Marvel Studios and how it compares to the old Hollywood studio system and look into whether or not it's at risk of suffering the same fate. To begin, we have to get some background on the Hollywood studio system. And for our purposes, let's start in 1914. 1914 is an important year because it's kind of where the US film industry begins its dominance. The beginning of World War I effectively killed off the European film industry leaving a vacuum that the US studios were more than happy to fill. This combined with the opening of the Panama Canal allowed for easy distribution of American films and dominance in the film industry both domestically and internationally. By the 1920s, the US film industry consisted of what was called the Big Five and the Little Three. The Big Five consisted of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, otherwise known as MGM, Paramount Pictures, Warner Brothers Pictures, 20th Century Fox, and RKO Radio Pictures, while the little three consisted of Universal Pictures, Columbia Pictures, and United Artists. The main difference between the big five and the little three was that the big five controlled nearly all aspects of the filmmaking process as they controlled production, distribution, and exhibition of their movies. They did this by owning a significant number of movie theaters throughout the country. The little three, on the other hand, controlled production and distribution. However, they did not have control over exhibition. At the same time, the few theaters that were independent were subject to block booking, which meant that in order to play a studio's major feature, they would also have to run the company's B-movies, newsreels, and other smaller films. While most of the 20s was still in the silent film era, 1927 saw a major evolution in film with the release of the first talkie the jazz singer it was the first feature film with sound synchronized to the film it was a huge success and within two years nearly all productions were talkies when the depression hit in 1929 the film industry continued to thrive at least for a few years it was a relatively cheap form of entertainment and it served as a form of escapism that helped people get away from the reality of life, namely the Depression and later World War II. 1933 saw another major change in the industry as a Catholic organization known as the Legion of Decency started arranging boycotts of movies that they deemed indecent. This led to the implementation of something called the Production Code in 1924. The Production Code was effectively a list of rules and guidelines for screenwriters. It was a list of do's and don'ts, and maybe think twice about. For example, there should be no scenes of passion, sex, deviance, or drug addiction. It needed to uphold the sanctity of marriage, but there should be no intimacy between partners. Violence could only be used if it was a central part of the plot. All films needed a production code seal in order to be released in the US. The production code operated as a blueprint for screenwriters. And what made it interesting was that writers then had to figure out ways to cleverly write around the code. It led to plenty of innuendo, implied sex and violence, and some would argue more nuance and depth to characters and scenes. By the late 30s, the depression had finally hit the film industry financially. And after a bailout from Wall Street and the government, MGM released The Wizard of Oz. While The Wizard of Oz was a critical success, it wasn't a massive hit at least not initially, but it did serve to lay the groundwork for things to come. First, it was the first major motion picture in color. Second, it was a massive production with a large budget. And finally, it was an adaptation of a children's book, which helped usher in an era where Hollywood would lean on literary adaptations. At this point, we should talk about how the major studios operated. The studios operated in what was termed a vertical integration scheme. It was a hierarchical power structure in which studio executives controlled all aspects of the production. As Jennifer E. Langdon says, quote, within the studio, the studio executives, whether in New York or Hollywood, operated as a block, wielding an almost autocratic power over the process of filmmaking. The ultimate authority rested with the, quote, money men in the New York offices. The studios in Hollywood were dominated by, a powerful produ- by powerful production heads who wielded enormous authority over the daily running of the studio." End quote. Everyone from screenwriters to directors to crew were all salaried workers and contracted to work at an individual studio. The result of all this was kind of an industrialized factory-like system of moviemaking. Profit and entertainment were valued far more than auteurism or social content. While many movies were cookie cutter, several classics still emerged from this era. Movies like Citizen Kane, Casablanca, and It's a Wonderful Life come to mind, though these movies seem to have succeeded in spite of the system that was in place. As Ronnie Regev put it, quote, the only exception occurred during the actual shooting of the picture. When the cameras were rolling, executive took a step back and maintained a looser form of management, an anomaly whose rationale arose from the structural function of film directing. Even within the standardized frenzy, directors though under supervision, managed to maintain some original autonomy." End quote. And as a result, we'd get the occasional masterpiece. Because of this process, studios developed their own style. MGM became known for musicals, and Universal was famous for their B-movies and their monster movies. Another important aspect of the studio system Another important aspect of the studio system was its implementation of the star system. Under the star system, the studios would take promising young actors and actresses and carefully cultivate an image for them. Often, they'd be created out of whole cloth, including a brand new name. The image was meant to blur the lines of fantasy and reality, and often their public persona was meant to match what was seen on the screen. The studio would control all aspects of their life, up to and including who they were to marry in some instances. Actors like Cary Grant, Joan Crawford, and Marilyn Monroe are all examples of the star system. The stars were also signed to long-term and extremely one-sided contracts that would bind them to a studio for extended periods of time. The studios did this to take advantage of celebrity worship. The stars would get top billing, and people would flock to see them, and the studio maintained all the control. There were a number of things that led to the demise of the studio system, the biggest of which was the 1948 Supreme Court ruling in the U.S. versus Paramount. The court found that Paramount violated antitrust laws by controlling production, distribution, and exhibition. As a result, the big studios were forced to sell their theater holdings and end the practice of block booking. While this was the biggest blow, there were several other things that contributed to the demise of the studio system over time the labor movement empowered workers and allowed them to fight for better conditions according to jennifer langdon quote the industrial structure that produced the phenomenal success and international hegemony of american movies also stringently divided film workers by craft and class and separated them from the studio heads the hierarchies of the studio system thus created an us and them mentality that ultimately enabled a broad-based solidarity among film workers, an imagined community of cultural workers," end quote. Over time, we saw the introduction of unions, the Screen Actors Guild, and the Directors Guild of America come to mind. Major stars would also take the studios to court over their contract and win. By the mid-50s, the production code had already been dissolved. In addition to this, appetites just started to change. Theater actors like Marlon Brando and James Dean brought method acting to the screen, and there was a renewed focus on character work. And then in the mid-60s, a slate of young directors were just given more creative control with minimal censorship. With all this pressure, the rise of television proved to be the final nail in the coffin of the studio system. And by the 1960s, the studio system was dead and buried. This brings us to Marvel. Marvel's been around in some iteration since 1939, and is home to characters like Spider-Man, the X-Men, and the Incredible Hulk. By the mid-90s, Marvel had sold the movie rights to its most popular characters for pennies on the dollar. For some context, two Spider-Man made $1.2 billion, of which Marvel only made $62 million. 1998's Blade made $131 million, of which Marvel only made $25,000. By the late 90s, Marvel made the decision to focus on making movies based only on characters which they own the rights to. And since Marvel only owned the rights to films of their second tier characters, they decided to start with Iron Man, since they thought he would likely make a little bit extra money in toy sales. In a strange turn of events, Robert Downey Jr., who to that point had been embroiled in one scandal after another, was chosen to play the lead character, Tony Stark. A complex, morally gray character who had to face his own inner demons, It would prove to be a match made in heaven, and a funhouse mirror version of the star system. In 2007, Kevin Feige was named President of Production for Marvel Studios. Feige wanted to do something that had never been done before. He wanted to create a vast interconnected universe that would span several movies and TV shows. The seeds for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or MCU, would be planted at the end of Iron Man thanks to a cameo from Samuel L. Jackson. Iron Man was released in 2008 and was a critical and commercial success, making $585 million worldwide. This was the birth of the Cinematic Universe, and the rest is history. Marvel has dominated the film industry ever since. By the end of 2022, there have been 30 MCU movies grossing over $25 billion. How did Marvel achieve this? Well, there are a few reasons, and we'll start to see how Marvel compares to the studio system. First and foremost is Kevin Feige. It starts and ends with him. He has a hand in all aspects of production and is able to make sure that the stories are all aligned and moving towards the same uniform vision. The second thing is that Marvel tends to have a format or a formula. Marvel screenwriters Stephen McFeely and Christopher Marcus explain that most movies have a major act one turning point. Act two has two pinches, which are places where the movie makes major turns, and then act three is as they quote, whatever it's going to be, which I translate as a giant CGI mess. The movies contain a mixture of comedy, drama, and tons of action. The formula has been repeated ad nauseum and has proven to be successful. What's interesting here is that while there are restraints, the movies can still feel wildly different and genre hop as needed. As Frank Pilata said, quote, That has been evident throughout Marvel's run of successful movies over the past 10 years. 2014's Captain America The Winter Soldier isn't a superhero movie. It's Three Days of the Condor with a superhero in it. 2015's Ant-Man isn't a superhero movie. It's a heist film with a superhero in it. 2016's Captain Captain America Civil War isn't a superhero movie. It's Kramer vs. Kramer, but recast with Iron Man and Captain America in place of Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep. End quote. Another incredibly important innovation by Marvel is how they've streamlined the process through previsualization, or previs. Filmmakers use previs to digitally map out entire scenes. It's gotten to the point that more than two thirds of every movie is rendered digitally before a single frame is shot. Previs is done by a third party company, and sometimes it's done before the director is even involved. The benefit of this is that studios can work through action scenes, camera angles and complicated effects digitally, saving a lot of time and production budget. It's so comprehensive that when director Lucera Martel was offered to direct Black Widow, the studio said not to worry about action scenes. She turned it down, and while in some ways it may seem like this would take away from the director's control of the product, in some ways it's enhanced creativity. Because Marvel is confident in their ability to manage the action, they don't need to hire action directors. And early on, Marvel Studios focused on hiring smaller auteur directors instead. This allows them to work within a system while adding their own touch, leading to movies that are familiar but unique and stand on their own. Another important aspect of the Marvel system is how they choose their actors. Marvel tends to go with lesser known actors to lead their movies, adding major stars often as side characters. They sign their actors to long-term deals, often seven movies at a time, From their perspective, the character is far more important than the actor. And that's proven to be true. The characters make the star under the Marvel system, not the other way around. In 2009, Disney purchased Marvel. And as Jason Bailey writes, in addition to its studios, film and television library, park and resort empire, and various ancillaries, the company already owns Pixar, Lucasfilm, Marvel Studios, the Disney ABC television group, which includes ABC, ABC Family, and several local ABC affiliates, ESPN, not only the multiple ESPN networks, but also radio and publishing arms, A&E networks, including A&E, the History Channel, and Lifetime, and a 30% stake in Hulu, end quote. If Marvel was a catalyst for the new studio system, then Disney is its embodiment. The MCU has inspired other studios to attempt their own interconnected cinematic universes, mostly with limited success. Even Universal is trying to reboot their old monster franchises from the studio era. In 2017, six of the eight worst performing films were meant to start a franchise. According to Spencer Harrison of the Harvard Business Review, quote, Marvel's success is rooted in four key principles. One, select for experienced in experience, two, Leverage a stable core. 3. Keep challenging the formula. And 4. Cultivate customers' curiosity. Not only do audiences appear to tolerate Marvel's constant experimentation, but it has become a critical element of the MCU experience. Fans go to the next film looking for something different. In contrast, franchises that have stuck closer to a winning formula run into trouble when they attempt to renew themselves, end quote. We can see that there are quite a few similarities between the studio system and how Marvel and Disney operate. In describing the Hollywood studio system, historian Thomas Schatz described three primary aspects. First was a hands-on producer, and we can see in Marvel, they have the same thing with Kevin Feige. He manages everything. The second thing was an efficient production process. Like the studio system, Marvel has top-down control and they control all aspects of their production. Marvel streamlines their process by running everything through Feige, working with Previz, and keeping most of their creative and production teams. The third part was the stars, and this is where Marvel does the inverse, as they focus on the characters. While the actors are made into stars, Marvel focuses on the characters. The characters and the IP, intellectual property, are far more important to them than the star. It's the inverse of the studio system. In the studio system, the actor made the character, but now the character makes the actor. And when their contract is up, Marvel can just slot somebody else in. Another interesting similarity is that in each case, there are parameters that should be creatively stifling, but instead foster clever workarounds. With the production code and the Marvel method, we find creators being able to cleverly work around and create unique and interesting movies. One area where there's a clear difference is the approach to a threat. Television was a major threat to the studio system and one that ultimately led to its demise. In the last 10 years, we've seen streaming rise to be a major threat to TV and film, but Disney has embraced it with their Disney Plus app. In doing so, however, it's led to another major similarity between the studio system and Marvel and Disney. In addition to owning the streaming app, Disney has very favorable deals with theaters, with a large slit of ticket sales and requirements that Marvel movies play in their largest room up to four weeks. This gives Disney not only control over production and distribution, but exhibition as well. And all of the major media conglomerates have followed suit. NBC Universal, Warner Brothers, Paramount have all started their own streaming platforms. It's effectively created a new studio system in which a small group of large media organizations control all aspects of how media is distributed while marvel has seen unrivaled success it still faces some of the pitfalls that ultimately destroyed the studio system as jason bailey put it quote, when the supreme court ruled in favor of the government in the united states versus paramount pictures the intent was clear the dissemination of information and entertainment should not be solely controlled by a handful of corporate entities, and those entities should not hold undue sway over the distribution and exhibition of their products. The court held that the business model of the major studios violated antitrust laws. If it was a calculated scheme to gain control over an appreciable segment of the market and to restrain or suppress competition rather than an expansion to meet legitimate business needs, end quote. And yet here we are again. Disney is dangerously close to violating antitrust laws. At the moment, I'm not sure that there's a public and especially the political will to fight this system, though I could see it on the horizon. The labor movement played a role in the fall of the studio system. And it's possible that our growing labor movement combined with a growing sense that while the rich hoard their wealth, everyone else gets squeezed dry, maybe one day we'll take aim at the business practices of these large media organizations. The other potential pitfall has to do with the content and what the public wants. The golden age of Hollywood happened to coincide with the golden age of comic books. This was partly due to the public's desire for escapism. As the public desired something more nuanced and realistic, we saw a decline in both. Could another paradigm shift be on the horizon? Who knows? But if you were to tell the 12-year-old me that the most popular thing in the world would be something that I got made fun of as a kid, I wouldn't have believed you. So I guess anything's possible. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ryan's Deep-ish Dives.